Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast from Faith Point Church, Auckland, New Zealand. We hope you will encounter God afresh in this week's teaching segment. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, then you can visit us at www.faithpoint.org.nz. And now for today's message. You know, Jesus told us to do one thing and uh, to make that our number one priority. Matthew 6.33, seek ye first. Not second, not third, not fourth, but make it your number one priority. The word seek means to pursue. It means to chase after. So he was saying, I want you to, this is the number one priority for you. I want you to chase after the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's not a physical palace. It's not a building. It's, it's not a, a country. It is the reign and rule of God's government on the earth. And he said, when you're prepared to do that and seek my righteousness, which is living in right relationship with the governing authorities of this kingdom. So in other words, if your heart is right, Jesus so many times taught us to forgive. Why did he focus on it so much? Because we all have problems with it. Issues arise. People do things, say things. They, they hurt us. And it's so easy to hold on to a grudge. And he said, if you're prepared to get, to make sure that you're in right relationship, living in righteousness with me, then he said, you won't have to chase after your primary needs of food, clothing, shelter, and water. They will chase after you. Because if you seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, all these things that he just spoken about in Matthew 6 will be added to you. And the world is cra- the world's on a crazy pursuit of things. And Jesus said, for those that follow me, I want you to live in an upside down paradigm. I want you to pursue me and all the things will be added to you. You won't have to worry about them. Don't be chasing after those things if you seek first the kingdom. So what's the kingdom? The kingdom of God is what God is building around the world right now on planet earth. And there's incredible things taking place around the world. There's testimonies of God's goodness everywhere, every second of every day, where the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead, who's the agent of God at work on planet Earth right now, is actively establishing the kingdom of God through his church, through the church and the bride of Jesus Christ. So right now here in this building, you have the privilege of being working with the Holy Spirit to expand God's rule and reign on planet Earth. Every time somebody surrenders to Christ, every time somebody gets saved or converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's kingdom just got expanded. God's kingdom just, uh, you know, another one for heaven, another soul for the kingdom of God, and God's kingdom just grew. And so we talked a little bit about that last week. We talked about that the kingdom is not supposed to be a secret society. That in fact, God, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, he said this, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. They may see the way that you've been living your life. And as a result of that, glorify your Father in heaven. There's something unmistakable about what's happening in your life where people become curious, where people become eager to know more about why you are the way you are. 
And if people stop asking us questions, we need to have a bit of a radical quick checkup for the neck up and actually find out what's been going on within our hearts and within our minds. And so, you know, Jesus said this church that he's, been, that he's building, he said this, it's going, it's, it's, I'm going to build it. Notice that? I'm going to build my church, not man. I'm going to build my church, and it's going to be so powerful that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And so he's talking about a prevailing church, a triumphant church, a church that is making headway. And we need to be reminded of that in faith today because right around the Western world, we're in reverse. We're going backwards. And we're going backwards because we haven't been following the Word of God and the ways of God. And as a result of that, we're in retreat mode. And God is reversing that. And I believe that's why the fires of revival will spark afresh within the hearts of those who fear the Lord, where there's going to be a fresh remnant that will rise in the Western church. And it will emerge. And sadly, it's probably going to have to emerge under persecution. Because we've grown so comfortable in our environment. And we're going to talk a little bit about that a little, a little later on. So what kind of a church pushes back the gates of hell? Because that's the kind of church I want to belong to. How about you? I want to belong to a church that is walking in the authority and the power and the love of God in such a way that the enemy is being pushed back. And, uh, you know, somebody once said, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you will ruin it. (laughs) The problem is, the problem with the church is that it's made up of imperfect people. And, uh, And that's where we get the issues that rise. But Jesus is working on us. Amen. We heard that this morning. Jesus is working on your heart. He's working on my heart. And so this morning, I've called the second message of Outward Bound, where we're finding this whole focus that God is bringing through the prophetic. I want you to be outward looking. I want you to be outward bound in your attitude and the attitude of your heart. I don't want you to be an exclusive club. I don't want you to be a secret society. I want you to be a church that will be prepared to rise and work and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Why was the book of Acts called the book of Acts? Because they acted. They acted with God. The apostles acted with the Lord. And everywhere they went, the signs followed the preaching of the word. Houses were shaken. Cities were shaken. Did you know in the book of Acts, several times in the book of Acts, it says whole cities were saved. Can you, can you believe with me today that that's still possible in the world that we live in? Because not, there's nothing like what happens when the Holy Spirit begins to break loose, when the ground has been prepared, when the hearts of God's people, it's not just about me building a comfortable life. It's actually about me being outward bound, expanding God's kingdom, being a kingdom expander, not a kingdom shrinker. Amen. Expanding God's kingdom. And so I want to talk about a church on fire in the New Testament whom Paul the Apostle puts up, as he says, as an example to all of the other churches. And uh, we're going to read a passage and I'm going to explain a little bit about the background here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you 
constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, number one, number two, your labor of love, number three, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's the word elect. You've been elected, chosen by God. What a privilege. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There's nothing half-hearted about this church. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's basically modern-day Greece, the whole nation. And, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. Let me just give you a little bit of background about this church. If we could have the next slide up. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And he heads up through what's modern-day Turkey, where the church of Ephesus is, and then he heads across, sails across into the province of Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. They are in Acts 16. They're in the church of Philippi. And basically, the long and short of it is everywhere they stop, God does amazing things. The, the, uh, the enemy gets really angry, incites crowds. They suffer persecution. They get kicked out of the towns and cities and they move on to the next place to go rinse and repeat. How about that? Knowing that basically you, you, you're, you're in for a potential hiding and thrashing, a physical beating, and you still go and do it anyway. That's what I call real courage and bravery under fire. And so they, they move on from Philippi in Acts 16 and they move to Acts 17 where they come, uh, Paul had a strategy, and this was his strategy. He would go to the largest cities of his day, and he would establish the church of Jesus Christ, and then out from there they would plant smaller churches in, in the smaller towns. And so he moves from Philippi to Thessalonica, uh, which is currently called Thessaloniki. That's the name of the city. And in Paul's day, this wasn't a small city. It was the second largest city in Greece, 200,000 population. So let's not think about these little uh, hick country New Zealand towns that Paul's going to. This was a large, industrial, coastal, thriving city where commerce was happening, where business was happening, where it was primarily... Uh, Greeks and Romans because it had been invaded by the Romans along with a remnant of Jews who wherever the Jews went, particularly the devout ones, they would establish a synagogue in a Gentile city and they would meet for fellowship on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Are you with me so far through that quick snapshot of what's going on here? And uh, so Paul gets there, and the Bible says in Acts 17, for three Sabbaths, he goes into the synagogue, and this is his strategy when he wanted to reach the Jews. They already had a basis of belief in the Old Testament. He would open the Scriptures, and then out of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, he would preach Jesus to them. 
and he would preach that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. He's come. He died for your sins. He was buried, but he rose out of the grave, and we're witnesses of this man's resurrection. And the Bible says that many of them believed in Thessaloniki. And not only many of them believe, but it says specifically in verse 4, I think it is, that many prominent women, these were businesswomen, these were leaders in the city, also came to faith. And this is what happened, sadly, through human behavior. The Jews got jealous and became envious of their popularity and started, they literally hired the worst guy in the city, like a hitman, to start a riot to get them to leave town. And so Paul and his crew escaped, and then later on that night after the riots, they snuck out of Thessaloniki after being there for approximately three or four weeks, having preached the gospel, All these people got saved, and then he got run out of town to a town called Berea. Have you heard about the Bereans? The Bereans who searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's Acts 17. So they get there. After being in this this riot and all this stuff going on, they come to Berea, and it's like, wow, this is like heaven on earth. These guys want to learn. These guys are searching the Scriptures daily about what I'm preaching about. You know, I love it. I used to love it in the day when we had paper Bibles. Do you remember that day? I used to love it when we used to have paper Bibles, and I'd be preaching. I'd hear the rustling of the pages as the people were turning the Scriptures. Now I can't hear anything because you're all gone digital on me. And, and so And so... These guys, the Bereans, they were, they were rustling through the pages, searching the Scriptures to see if what Paul was talking about was actually true. And they came to the Lord. And so he had a great time there, and then he went down to the biggest city. He went down to Athens and, uh, and preached the gospel and started a church down there. So you've got a snapshot of this church where he then writes two letters, First Thessalonians and two Thessalonians. And in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he begins to describe as we've just read, and this is basically what he says. He says, even though we were with you for such a short period of time and you had intense persecution around you, you received the word that we preached and you received it not just as the words of man, but as the word of God. And you received it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of God was at work in you. And this is what Paul found out. He was so concerned when he was down in Athens. No internet, no email, no mobile phones, no way of finding out what's happened to the guys where we were only there for three or four weeks. So he sends Timothy back up there to find out what's been going on. And Timothy was like his young offsider who was part Jewish, part Gentile. He was a half-breed. And he sends him back up there and then Timothy brings back the good news and he says, this church is on fire. This church is sharing the gospel everywhere they go. Even though they're under under the pump, they're persecuted. The power of God is at work in them. So much so that the whole of the nation has heard the word because of this one church. Come on, church, let's get a vision. 
Why can't that be our church? I'm not being elitist, but why can't that be our church? If God did it back then, do you think he can do it again? Yes, he can. He can do it. And he wants to do it, but he wants to do it through you and I. And so he finds out from Timothy that, in fact, this church is just roaring ahead and God is at work amongst the people and they're doing an incredible job. Can you imagine what great news that would have been for him after suffering so much hardship and persecution? So there's three lessons, three lessons that we can get out of this background of what happened with the church at Thessaloniki. And number one lesson this morning, to be a church on fire, we've got to understand that God uses people to get his work done. He didn't command a legion of angels to go into the city and start proclaiming the gospel. He used ordinary Joe Blog human beings, Paul and his team, He used a converted Jewish rabbi and his crowd that were traveling with him to get this church started under intense persecution. And from there, the Holy Spirit took over and began to work through the church. God used people then. He's still using people today. He wants to work through your life. He wants you to work through you to touch your friends, your family, your neighborhood this morning. And remember last week I said, what's the key to our influence? The key to our influence, and it will always be the same, and it will remain true as it was in Jesus' day, as it is today. God wants us to widen our circle of influence. Let's not be the holy huddle, the final remnant that are holding on for grim death for the return of Christ. Quickly come, Lord Jesus. It's getting really hostile around here. I just want to get out of here. That's not the church we see here. And let's remember this church was under more intense persecution than we've ever had in New Zealand. Yes, you'll get an allergic reaction when you talk about Jesus and our culture. You you know, but you won't get a beating, not yet anyway. And we're going to understand this is the environment that this church bravely and boldly began to spread the news wherever they went to talk about what Jesus had been doing within their lives. We're not supposed to be an exclusive club. It's time for us to widen our circle of inclusion, to include people that you've been walking past every day, probably for the last couple of years, even in your workplace, your business place, people that you've never engaged with. God says, I want you now to widen your circle of inclusion and start letting them in to your life. Because if they see Jesus at work in you, there's a greater opportunity and chance that they're going to come to know him personally. And so what kind of people were these Thessalonians? Because Paul actually gives thanks for them. And this is what he says. I'm praying and I'm remembering before God in verse 3. This is, look what he says. I'm remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Let's have a quick look at these. Your work of faith. Work? Count me out, mate. <laughs> work? I thought this, this, this was easy believism, this Christian thing. Simply believe. Only believe. Isn't that what Jesus said? How come this work bit is now prefacing faith? Your work 
of faith. Because the reality is, friends, is that when God begins to move, it takes hard work to get in there and see your faith begin to be stretched and exercised. Because why? You've got to include people. You can't control people. Sometimes they do weird things, funny things, say bad things, do strange things, do weird things. Just look at yourself you weirdo. Anyway, (laughs) no, I take that back. You're great people. (laughs) But you see, the work of faith, he's saying this. He's saying exactly what James said. He says, he says, show me your faith by your works. A faith that works has works attached to it. In other words, there'll be things that God will ask you to do, even things outside of your normal working hours that God will ask you to do. Go and see this person. Say hi to this person. Go and pray for that person. Go and help this person. I want you to do this. I remember as a young believer, I used to bike past this old guy's house every day and his lawns were all overgrown and he lived in this tiny little house. And every now and again, I'd see him and he was six foot eight, stooped over, And he used to walk around his property like this. And every day I went past and I could see that his lawns were in dramatic need of a makeover. His section hadn't had any work. And the Lord said to me, I want you to to go. And I want you to turn up organized, ready to go. And I want you to turn up in your work clothes, knock on his door and say, I'm here to do your lawns. So I knock on his door. He comes to the door. Who are you? He was really grumpy. Who are you? And so I introduced myself, and, I'm, and I, I said, this is what I said to him. It's real out there stuff. But I said to him, uh, God has spoken to me to come and do your lawns. <laughs> and I was shocked. He didn't bat an eyelid, and he said, all right, let's go down to the shed, and I will go and get the mower, and you can start straight away. <laughs> he honestly didn't. And then I found out that he was a conservative Christian. He'd been raised in the Brethren Church all of his life. He had a solid faith, but he'd been terribly treated all the way through his life because he was a gentle giant and people took advantage of him. And he used to work in the mines in Huntley and he was tarred and feathered several times as a mine worker in Huntley. And then he told me a secret. He said, I haven't told anyone else this because I didn't want anyone to feel bad. He said, I got so, they used to beat me up. They used to spit on me. They used to punch me. And I always turned the other cheek because that's what my Bible taught me. And he said, one day, this big bully that used to do it to me, he said, I just had enough, James. And he said, you know what I did? And I said, what did you do? And he said, I turned around and I knocked him out with one punch. (laughs) He said, nobody ever bothered me ever again. You know, he then invited me to go and stay with him in that little house, and I stayed with him for six months. Left my flatting situation, stayed with him for six months to teach him about the Holy Spirit. And we had this really weird, unique relationship, and, uh, and we had a wonderful time where God just gave me a window of opportunity, and then not long after that, he passed away. It was an amazing time. His section was always kept nice and tidy. He always had someone to rely on to go and do his groceries and his shopping and all those kinds of things. I was 20 years old. I was a brand new Christian at that time. But I, lo- I learned very quickly 
that if you're a believer, a true believer, there is a work of faith that needs to be done. And sometimes it requires work. We've got to put feet to our faith. And so if you will have a sign on your forehead that says to the Lord, I'm available, then God will choose you and he will use you and he will work through you in order to get his work done. Did you know that Paul said that there are works that have been prepared beforehand, preordained good works for you to walk in in Ephesians 2, chapter 10. I love Mother Teresa in regard to this. This is what she said about the work of faith. If you can't feed 100 people, feed just one. If you can't feed 100 people, feed just one. Do what you can do in order to glorify God. So that's, he says, number one, I've been praying for you, remembering your work of faith. Secondly, he says, your labor of love. This sounds like hard work again, doesn't it? Hard labor. Your labor of love. How does labor and love go in the same sentence? I'm remembering your labor of love. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1, without love, we just become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. In other words, if we're not demonstrating love, do you know how you're going to come across to people? As a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you add the ingredient of love where you are concerned about the highest welfare for that person that God has brought you into contact with and you're prepared to labor that love and work that love in their lives, it's not just going to happen with a sweet, did you hear about Jesus? Often it will have to go beyond that first conversation into an arena where God says, I want you to enter into this labor of love. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 2, he goes on, though I have the gift of prophecy, many in this church do have, and though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that's the revelation gifts of the Spirit at work, and though I have all faith, wow, all faith? In other words, what's all faith? That means I can just believe God and he's going to do incredible things. That's pretty cool. So we've got revelation gifts, we've got prophecy, we've got all faith so that I could remove mountains. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. So Paul's saying, I remember your, your work of faith and your labor of love. The fact that you are such a church on fire and you're making an incredible difference because love is at work in the midst of this church. And in Mother Teresa again, she said this, the hunger for love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger for bread. The hunger for love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger for bread. And she fed thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of kids in Calcutta who were desperate not just for food, but they were desperate for love. Who's going to show them the love, friends? Who's going to demonstrate them? the love of God in their midst. And thirdly, he says this, I remember your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember this, these guys were born with violent persecution all around them. It wasn't easy to be a Christian. If you were going to say you were a follower of Jesus, get ready to get your head chopped off. Many of them did. Many of the early believers died a martyr's death. And this is what he's saying. You guys are incredible. In the midst of violent opposition towards your faith, you have stood steadfast, unswerving, 
unwavering in your commitment to Jesus Christ. You haven't skipped a beat. You're still marching on, sharing the gospel and being Jesus to people. What an incredible church this church is. You know, hope Elsewhere, Paul says, he gives two uh, metaphors for hope. He says it's a helmet. Do you know why you need a helmet of hope right now? Because even I at times have been discouraged by the, by the, um, the huge change in our routines that COVID-19 has brought around the world and to our doorstep in New Zealand. And sometimes it can get discouraging. Sometimes you can find depression beginning to sneak in because we don't have the same freedom that we used to have. Anyone else felt like that? And so he says, you need to have the helmet of hope. What does a helmet do? It protects your mind. You need to keep that sentry at the front of your mind and not allow this negative thinking to gain access to your mind. Have a steadfastness of hope. He also said hope is like an anchor. Do you know why we have anchors? So we don't drift. So we need the steadfastness of hope. What was the hope in? It was in the second coming and the return of Jesus Christ. It was in the promises of God. And in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks in detail about the return of Jesus. We shall see him coming in the air. And all those who are alive on earth will be caught up together with him. This is an incredible picture of hope. And that locked on to this hope. And they were steadfast. They were unmoved and unwavering in this hope that they have. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the great hope for every believer of Jesus. How many of you are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ? Amen. It's a great hope for the soul that we have today. Just don't start hanging out at the rapture bus stop and saying to Jesus, get me out of here. We've still got a work of faith and a labor of love, amen, to carry out here on earth. The second lesson that we get out of this uh, church is that the, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. We can try and jazz the gospel up. That Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, and now whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life. That is the gospel. Word gospel means good news. That is great news that God's resurrection power conquered death, conquered the grave. But this is what Paul was saying. He was saying this, the gospel of Jesus Christ has power in and of itself to save people from eternal damnation. Look at what he says. Our gospel didn't come to you with words only but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were for your sake. In the book of Romans chapter 1, he says this, For I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is, not it was, for it is, present tense, the power of God unto salvation. All we need to do is faithfully present this good news 
the message of the gospel, and it has power in and of itself. Think about how you came to Christ. Think about how you got saved. Do you know how you got saved? Somebody shared this gospel with you, and it had power to be unleashed on your life, to turn your life around. Can I hear an amen from somebody this morning? And lastly this morning, the third lesson that we get from this is that Satan still opposes the gospel, and persecutes God's people. An organization called Open Doors that goes into bat for persecuted Christians around the world, every year they bring out a list of the worst persecuted nations. I've been to many of the persecuted nations around the world. I've been to, I've been to nations where they've had to uh, hide me in the back of taxis, swap me from one taxi to the back of a motorbike, back into a taxi, just to get to my destination so that those following me wouldn't be able to catch up with where we're meeting with secret believers who are under persecution. I know what it's like to share and teach uh, brothers in Christ who have spent 30, 40 years in jail for their faith. I was preaching in the underground church in Vietnam 20 years ago and I had a, a young man come up to me. He was about 30 years old. He'd just done 10 years in prison. And you know who else was in the room? His father was in the room, and he'd done 20 years in prison, all for sharing the name of Jesus. These are heroes of the faith. And what we must understand is that right now we have a false economy in our nation because we know what the Bible teaches about the climate of the last days. We know that eventually persecution is coming to our shores. Now, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm not trying to freak you out. But we know what the Bible teaches about the climate of the last days. There will be controls exercised. There will be governments exercised. There will be a global government that will exercise control over your life. And there will be certain things you will be demanded to be done. And if you don't do them because you stand up for Jesus, then get ready for the opposition and the persecution. Open Doors, I read this on their website yesterday. In 2020, there are currently 250 million of our brothers and sisters around the world who are under heavy persecution. We're a nation of 5 million people. Do you know how many people that is? 250 million of our brothers and sisters right now are in fear of their lives being lost because of opposition to the gospel. So simply to say this, friends, over the 30 years I've been preaching the gospel in this nation and nations of the world, I can see the writing is on the wall right now for us to get ready and get our hearts ready and prepared that we're going to come out of a very tepid, warm, lukewarm environment in our nation because Jesus wants the gospel to be shared, and Satan will oppose that. And so let's face up to that in the name of Jesus. I'm nearly finished this morning, church. I'm going to skip uh, 1 Thessalonians 3. So if you can just fast forward through those slides of chapter 3 for the sake of time. But I encourage you, uh, church, to read chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians because there Paul makes it very clear the role of persecution 
in the life of this church that was on fire for Jesus. And I want to finish by asking you three questions today. Three questions. As a result of this passage of Scripture, the first question is this. These are questions we're to ask ourselves. Are others thankful for me and my role of expanding God's kingdom in the earth today? Remember, this letter was written, and Paul is giving thanks for these believers in the way that they're living their lives. Is somebody giving thanks for the way that you're living your life today? For your activity as a soldier of Jesus Christ, is your life representative? Not one of these chocolate soldiers that as soon as the heat comes on, we melt under the heat. But true followers of Jesus Christ who are prepared to stand up for our faith. Second question that was evident in these Christians' life is, ask yourself, is God's power at work and is it evident in my life? Is God's power evident in my life today? Is it seen? Is there something within your life today where you can testify to the power of God being at work within your life? I'm sorry to be the one that has to ask you these nasty questions today. But these questions are an outcome of the text that we've been looking at this morning. Number one, is somebody thankful for you and for what you're doing in the kingdom of God? Remember, I remember, Paul says continuously, I remember you constantly. I'm remembering you in my prayers. I'm thanking God for the way that you're living your life of faith. Is God's power seen in my life? And lastly this morning, does my example and conduct make it easier for others to talk about Jesus? What do you mean, Pastor James? Well, it was really easy for Paul talk about Jesus and what he'd been doing around these guys. You know why? Because they were the real deal. I've worked in places where people have said they're Christians, but their behavior completely is contrary to their confession. They're still cussing and swearing and carrying on, telling dirty jokes, laughing at the smoko table at unsavory things. They're no different to anybody else that's in the room, but they said that they follow Jesus. So I want to ask you the question today from the text, does my example and conduct make it easier for others to talk about Jesus? In other words, you're not a stumbling block for someone else that you work with to share about Jesus. They can confidently know they have an ally in the room because you live and walk a straight line. Listen, friends, I'm not talking about being perfect. There's nobody in this room that's perfect. But I am talking about being genuine, being real. I had many situations in the marketplace and in the workplace where I had to go and say sorry to people because of my behavior. In my first year of a Christian, I had a foreman that turned on me in my workplace and just made it so difficult for me, he got great joy out of making my life miserable. But before I was a Christian, we were mates. Suddenly I came to Christ, and all of a sudden, it was his mission to make me squirm and feel miserable. 
So did I always respond? Did I always respond the way that, that God wanted me to? Now, you know what? One day I was cocked, locked, and loaded, and I was ready to take him out and revert back to my violent past. And I can remember down on one knee as I was inspecting one of the tanks at work, and I remember he was just drilling me. He was just making me miserable, and I could feel my fist cock, and I had him all lined up ready to knock him out, ready to go. And as I'm about to get ready to load on him, the Holy Spirit says to me, James, turn the other cheek. I recognize those words because I've been reading the Gospels. Jesus said, turn the other cheek when you are opposed by somebody. Let them hit that one also. And you know what ended up happening? I ended up apologizing to my foreman and saying that I hadn't always lived the right life, and we got back on square pegging, and in the end, you know what happened? Six months later, he came to Christ. Six months later, he came to know Jesus, and suddenly we were allies together in the workplace. We were the weird ones in the workplace that everybody else loved to pick on as he saw a genuine, authentic turning around of my life where I was prepared to say sorry when I blew it. And as a result, he could count on me as an ally in the days ahead. Let's stand to our feet, shall we, church?